Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, traditional Greek culture is preserved in Tarpon Springs, including a unique epiphany celebration that begins each year. Most of the people there do speak Greek, and they get up in the morning and have Greek food and sweep out their courtyards, which have various plants you might see in Greece, you know, and they'll have their coffee outside. After one full year on this program, commentator Connie Lester reflects on the passage of time. We create complex calendars to schedule every moment with slots for every conceivable activity, including time to record this segment of Florida Frontiers. And we'll talk about New Deal public works projects in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. In the city of Tarpon Springs, you can listen to Greek music, try the tasty pastry baklava, have a meal of lamb stew or a unique Greek seafood dish, sip the licorice-flavored alcoholic beverage ouzo, and enjoy many other aspects of traditional Greek culture. You can see the neo-Byzantine-style architecture of St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Church and watch the sponge divers unload their catch on the city dock downtown. Tarpon Springs has the largest percentage of Greek Americans of any city in the United States. Even before the first 500 Greek sponge divers arrived in Tarpon Springs in 1905, a thriving town was already in place. The Diston land purchase of 1881, when Hamilton Diston bought 4 million acres of land for 25 cents an acre, led to the establishment of Tarpon Springs. Diston brought businessman Anson Safford to Tarpon Springs to stimulate development. Tina Bukovalis is Curator of Arts and Historical Resources for the city of Tarpon Springs and says that Safford moved into a small, dog-trot-style cracker house. They uh, improved the house by adding a second story and expanding it, um, and it became quite a showcase, uh, basically trying to show the elegant way that people could live in Florida uh, at a time when this was really, in many ways, still kind of a frontier town. Uh, but through the influence of Anson Safford uh, and uh, Hamilton Diston and, and the wealthy Northerners that came in, you know, there did uh, Tarpon Springs did develop to be, uh, to become one of the early uh, and very elegant resorts. The Victorian home that Safford created can be enjoyed today. The Safford House Museum features period furniture and original family artifacts that preserve the home as it was in 1883. Soon after Anson Safford began developing Tarpon Springs, the Orange Belt Railway came to the town in 1887. The train depot is now a museum. Sharon Sawyer is archivist for the Tarpon Springs Area Historical Society, which operates the museum. The building we're in was built in 1909 because the original railroad station burned down in 1908. 
and this was restored in 2005 to its original um, the floors you'll notice in uh, the pine floors out front and also the warehouse floors in the back are the original uh, the walls we've left um, with the writing on it and um, so this is this was um, segregated when it was built uh, there's if you go out front there's a colored waiting room and a white waiting room and th there was a wall in between the two that was torn down in the 70s not until the 70s um, the station master's room is the next room over and we have exhibits in that and then the warehouse area we have um, pretty much the history of Tarpon Springs uh, that you can go through so it's it's a neat museum. Displays at the Tarpon Springs History Museum include profiles of prominent physicians including Dr. Mary Jean Safford. Mary was Anson Safford's sister and is believed to be the first female physician in Florida. Shelving and bottles from the 1880s drugstore are also displayed along with artifacts from the Orange Belt Railway. Sharon Sawyer. One thing uh, about the railroad, it was um, brought here by Peter Demons, Demons Landing in St. Petersburg. Um, he, he brought the railroad from Sanford to Tarpon Springs and then on down to St. Petersburg. And it was supposed to be the longest um, 12 gauge, I guess it is, railroad in the United States at that time. So um, before the railroad came, everybody had to get here by boat or uh, wagon. So the railroad in 1887 made the big difference here in town, I believe. It was the sponge industry, though, that really put Tarpon Springs on the map. By the mid-1800s, there was a thriving sponge industry in the Florida Keys, but by the beginning of the 20th century, Tarpon Springs was the largest sponge port in the United States. While sponges in the Keys were harvested with long poles, in Tarpon Springs, Greek sponge divers donned canvas suits with round metal helmets. Tina Bukovalis explains what makes the Tarpon Springs community unique. Florida is the only place in the country that uh, sponges grow, and, and the sponge industry was the biggest maritime industry in Florida, and we're talking millions in the late 19th century, which was quite something. Um, and um, Key West at that time, you know, in the 19th century was a bigger producer, but uh, once uh, sponges were discovered in this area in 1873, the whole area from here up up to Apalachicola became a hotbed of sponging, and eventually um, Tarpon Springs became a market for sponges. Uh, and when Greeks came into this area as uh, sponge buyers, uh, John Kokoros, uh, he realized that the way sponges were harvested in Greece would uh, produce far more than the methods, the hooking methods they were using in Florida. So they brought over Greeks and um, uh, it was advertised that there was uh, a lot of business to be done here. So uh, at first 500 came in 1905 and then within a couple years there were 1500 and there were lots of boats. And uh, it uh, very quickly made uh, Tarpon Springs the sponge capital of the world. Tarpon Springs was a big, important town at a time when St. Pete was a, a wide place in the road. Uh, and there were buyers here from Europe. Uh, it, it was quite a place. Uh, and um, before long, I mean within a couple decades, the Greeks were the majority 
or the, well, I would say they were the dominant population element because there were several population elements. There were the there's the Anglo element and the African American, which had a very big Bahamian influence because of the sponge industry. But for a long time, the Greeks were the dominant population element. So the fact that this was a big uh, pocket of Greek culture and has remained so. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine not long ago in Miami who's a cultural geographer, and she pointed out that this is the only place in Florida that has such a unique, ongoing, uh, whole cloth pocket of European settlement. There are places with Latin American settlement, West Indian settlement, but European communities, this is, this is unique in Florida. With the large influx of Greek sponge divers and their families to Tarpon Springs, businesses to serve them were established, including restaurants, grocery stores, bakeries, and coffee houses. St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Church was constructed in 1907 and expanded in 1943 with marble imported from Greece. The unique Epiphany celebration held on January 6th attracts people from around the world. Following a ceremony at St. Nicholas, the congregation walks to the sponge docks downtown where a wooden cross is thrown into the water. The young man who retrieves the cross is believed to be blessed for the year. The Patriarch of Constantinople, who is the Greek Orthodox equivalent of the Pope, came to Tarpon Springs in 2006 for the 100th anniversary of the city's unique Epiphany celebration. Tita Bukovalis, former folklorist for the state of Florida, explains that there are many examples of Greek culture in Tarpon Springs. I think in, in all instances in which there are large um, bubbles, you know, of population, such as with Cubans in Miami, you know, or Greeks here, you get more of a whole cloth culture. And here, um, the culture has been brought over pretty much whole cloth. Uh, I mean, as, as one writer pointed out, um, when the Greeks came to here, they actually changed their life very little from what it was in Greece because the climatic conditions were very similar. They were in the same occupations. They were living together, you know, and eventually they brought their families over in a certain part of town. You know, they brought the priests and religion in, and basically it was very much like living in Greece. And so even today, you know, after people have been here, some people for four or five generations, you know, depending how quickly and when they came over, you know. Um, there's still a big segment of the population that speaks Greek. I live in the part of town called Greek Town, and most of the people there are Greek, and most of the people there do speak Greek. And they get up in the morning and have Greek food and sweep out their courtyards, and which have various plants you might see in Greece, you know, and they'll have their coffee outside. And the old ladies in their headscarves will be going over to St. Michael's Chapel or St. Nicholas or whatever, or down to the bakery, the National Bakery down the street, which is a Greek bakery, or to Halki Market, which has been there for 100 years or so. Uh, the men will go, walk right by my house to go to the Caffeinea, which are traditional men's Greek coffee houses. Uh, a lot of them who are old divers and things will go down to the sponge docks, which is a few blocks down the street, and just hang out at the docks to, to, ha to hang out with other old guys and see what the divers and things are doing. You know, it's, uh, you know, the people with the gift shops, while it may look like tourist shops, the culture there is very much an active Greek culture. The dominant language is probably Greek. If you go down there, you sp I mean, if I go down there to go to the hockey market, I'll spend two hours, you know, talking to various people. You know, it's like living in a small Greek town uh, with all the ups and downs. <laughs>
The Greek history and culture of Tarpon Springs is preserved in a new heritage center with exhibits and artifacts and space for public gatherings. Greeks have the dominant culture in Tarpon Springs, but archivist Sharon Sawyer has lived in the city for almost 60 years and says that all people get along in this small community. The Greeks and the Anglos, everyone, as far as I can remember, got along. It was like a, a community project for all of us. Some of my best friends are Greek girls. Some of them are uh, cracker girls. You know, it's it's uh, just, it's still got that small community feeling about it. So there are a lot of people that have moved in, but it still has that small community feeling. You don't find that everywhere. A trip to downtown Tarpon Springs provides the opportunity to see spongers at work sailing into port on boats with unique Greek designs. Tina Bukovalis. There is a special kind of sponge boat that developed in the Aegean, which is called an Akdarmas, which is a type of trahandri, which is a, a type of Greek fishing boat. But this particular boat was designed for sponging, and some of the spongers swear that this is still the best design. Um, and uh, back in the early days and up until, you know, a few decades ago, these, these boats were being produced hundreds and hundreds were produced from here to Apalachicola because Greeks went all the way from here up the coast and were working in maritime industries. So, for instance, the one that's sitting in the middle of the sponge exchange as a display was built in Apalachicola and sailed down here for sale. But, um, yeah, these boats have a, a very different bow, you know, than, than most boats do, different design, you know, but they're very stable and uh, have all the right stuff, you know, to carry the sponges and everything. The last, um, the last boat builder, Greek boat builder, is George Sarukos, who got a, a received a Folk Heritage Award uh, in 2009. And there's only one working Greek sponge boat, um, and it's his last boat that he built, and that's owned by Tasso Karastinos, who, who also won a Folk Heritage Award in 2009. 10 uh, as a sponge diver and captain. The history and culture of Tarpon Springs is preserved at the Safford House Museum, the Train Depot Museum, and the Heritage Center. While tourism has eclipsed sponge diving as the economic engine driving Tarpon Springs, it's still the living, active maritime community that attracts tourists to the downtown docks. It is a working waterfront, and um, although the sponge industry has shrunk, um, a lot of the boats, but not all of the boats, still dock there. The city has 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 essentially given them this part of the downtown working docks uh, to have their boats, and they conduct do conduct their business from there. So during a significant part of the year, from from about the beginning of April and of March, you know, to November through November, uh, the the spongers will be. Uh, coming in and going out, and um, you know when they're not uh, uh, having downtime and working on their boats and out there, they are loading, unloading sponges, processing sponges. They are actually the best ambassadors for the town because almost all of them are very articulate and very willing to talk to people and explain what they're doing, and you know are essentially demonstrating the processes right there on the docks. And then, and then surrounding the docks area across the street are various shops. Um, many of them are gift shops, but there's also quite a few restaurants. And it's not just for tourists. That's where locals go, too, all, all the time, you know, so people can experience culture there. Or, you know, some of the shops are full of Greek 
CDs or videos, again, you know, where locals go, you know, so um, people can still come in and have access to Greek culture that way. Tina Bukovalis is Curator of Arts and Historical Resources for the City of Tarpon Springs. We also spoke with Sharon Sawyer, archivist for the Tarpon Springs Area Historical Society. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org, where you can find archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Well, Connie, a new year is upon us. Yes, Happy New Year. The end of the old year and the beginning of the new is perhaps a good moment to reflect on time. In our hurry-up world, time is money, and we are admonished to make the most of our time. We create complex calendars to schedule every moment with slots for every conceivable activity, including time to record this segment of Florida Frontiers. Google will remind us if we have any free time, just so we know that we can schedule something else. Computers chime and watches beep to signal the next appointment. Alexa adds her two cents as well. Watches and clocks once showed the passage of hours and minutes with the sweep of a delicate hand. Now digital watches present the hour, minute, second, and fraction of each second, a relentless march into the future. For most of human history, philosophers were aware of the passage of time and the use of time, but time was not such a taskmaster. Time was measured in agricultural seasons and religious holy days. Dawn, noon, sunset, and night were the principal determinants of any day. Weather and seasons shaped the year as experience and folklore connected the two to establish planting and harvesting times. Religion overlaid the work regimen and determined holy days throughout the year for reflection and festivals and individual days also allotted times for prayer and worship. The advent of the clock, and more importantly, the use of the clock to order work, was frequently met with resistance and sometimes violence. Workers who rebelled against the workshops and factories of the early modern period frequently smashed the clock as the hated symbol of their work regimen and abuse. In the early 20th century, Frederick W. Taylor created a scientific system of management that his detractors derisively called Taylorism. His system was based on time and motion studies to make workers more efficient and more profitable to their employers. Workers claimed that the implementation of such studies denied them control over their own bodies. Clocks and time were essential in transportation. The creation of accurate maps and better navigation through the plotting of longitude depended on precise time. 
Likewise, railroads required knowledge of precise time in order to move trains safely, particularly when they were using the same track. The railroads established the time zones in the United States, and railroad time was the official time, with train companies issuing conductors gold pocket watches to keep the trains moving on time. First, as railroad traffic became more reliable and predictable, and then as air travel became the norm, we began to measure distance by time. Today, we say it takes four hours to fly to Denver from Orlando, not that it's 1,800 miles between the two cities. As social media became a significant part of our lives, we document for all the world to see that our lives are full and complete, showing how busy we are. Every minute is filled with activity. Children's schedules are calculated minute by minute to be sure they have all the experiences we deemed essential to a well-lived childhood. Playdates, sports, arts, study, fill the day, and often relegate parents to the role of chauffeur. Even college professors who once envisioned a life of great thought find themselves rushing from meeting to meeting, hurrying to meet publication deadlines, grade student papers, and write lectures without time for even a modest thought, never mind a great one. If the pandemic has taught us anything, it may be that there is beauty and regeneration in quiet and thought. We can see that many are reconsidering how their time is spent and reclaiming from their employers and the world the right to decide how, where, and when they work. This may be a passing moment, but perhaps it is worth considering what some of the great thinkers have said about time. How did it get so late so soon? It's night before it's afternoon. December is here before it's June. My goodness, how the time has flown. How did it get so late so soon? Dr. Seuss. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf. So do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. J.R.R. Tolkien, The Fellowship of the Ring. Yesterday is gone. Tomorrow has not yet come. We have only today. Let us begin. Mother Teresa. We must use time wisely and forever realize that the time is always ripe to do right. Nelson Mandela. Happy New Year. My wish for you is that you are pleased with the way you use your time. Happy New Year to you, Connie, and we're pleased that you use your time here on Florida Frontiers, and congratulations on your first full year with us. Thank you. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. In the 1930s, the United States government came together to launch expansive New Deal public works projects that benefited Floridians. Holly Baker has more. Dr. Robert Krause is an architectural historian and a disaster response specialist who works in Houston, Texas. Dr. Krause wrote an article in the summer 2018 issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly Journal called New Deal Public Works in the Florida Panhandle, 1933-1940. He recently talked to me about President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal, 
and how it transformed Florida through federal programs meant to employ Americans during the economic downturn of the Great Depression. New Deal Public Works, and really what we mean by that are any federally funded projects that uh, change both the human and uh, environmental space during the New Deal period. And, and they fall under, of course, the alphabet agencies, the blanket uh, of those. And really, it, you know, the New Deal Public Works, and especially in places like Florida and in Mississippi, they usher in a period of tremendous economic, social, and political change. Transformation, really, of the natural environment and the human-built environment in the early 20th century. One of the most successful programs of the New Deal was the Civilian Conservation Corps, or CCC, a federal worker relief program intended to employ young men to work on construction and conservation projects throughout the United States. The work done by the CCC in Florida between 1933 and 1942 established several state parks that are still enjoyed by visitors today. CCC workers built picnic facilities, buildings, fences, roads, and other infrastructure in order to make the parks accessible to the public. The establishment of the Florida State Park System is really driven by the CCC and uh, their efforts on the ground throughout the state. Um, I think the Florida State Parks were uh, most notably a new presence and visible presence in the Panhandle. So you have places like Florida Caverns being um, actually surveyed by CCC crews and uh, the first tourism in uh, Defuniac Springs. Also alongside the commercial aspects of this, the scientific piece, the revolutionary kind of science that's emerging from this uh, on ecology and botany in places like Terea Pines State Park in Gadsden County. And uh, I think this speaks to the sort of uh, utilitarian appreciation that New Deal had for environmental facets in the natural environment. The New Deal also significantly impacted Florida through road and bridge construction projects. Inspired by the Good Roads movement of the 1890s, these construction projects predated the Interstate Highway Program, developed by President Dwight D. Eisenhower in the 1950s, and led to the integration of car culture and increased tourism in the state. One example of the uh, use of public money to improve the infrastructure of the New Deal period in Florida was the Good Roads Program. What became the Gulf Coast Highway gained a, an impressive new bridge, the Gory Bridge opened to traffic in 1935, and that allowed Apalachicola to become connected with the rest of Florida. The uh, federal money in Calhoun County actually completed a major long-span steel bridge over the Apalachicola River that I believe is still in use. And it was one of those road and bridge construction projects in the Panhandle that fueled uh, growth and the development really of that uh, the industrial military complex in the region those road building projects were really transformative. New Deal construction projects also impacted communities throughout Florida by building new schools, playgrounds, libraries, gymnasiums, and other recreational facilities. Dr. Krause. Another way that you see this manifest is uh, in municipal and local construction projects. South of Ocala, uh, a lot of those municipal local construction projects were built on existing facilities, whereas in the Panhandle, particularly in counties that were majority African-American like Gadsden and Washington, you had a, a situation where there were no facilities to begin with. So schools were built, swing sets were built, uh, you know, recreational equipment, uh, and, and boat docks, marinas were transformed. I mean, so this had a very wide-ranging impact on the local economy, particularly in places that to us would appear much more isolated than they are even now. Many of the roads and bridges we traverse to get to Panama City or Apalachicola didn't exist then. And the New Deal infrastructure allows those things to happen. So to me, uh, the New Deal and, and these basically construction projects 
changed the face of Florida as markedly as anywhere else in the country. There are those very localized impacts that remain today and, and the sort of broader patterns that do as well. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week and every week. You can visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, wishing you a happy new year. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.